We're back on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer that come Monday will be today in Ohio, a news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Same discussion, same cast of characters, just a name that more appropriately fits what this is about. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, who will be back on Monday for Today in Ohio. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. <laughs> we got some good stuff to talk about, so let's start talking. Did Cleveland's baseball team ultimately decide to simply steamroll the Cleveland Guardians roller derby team and steal the name without compensation? Layla Tassi, the formerly known as Cleveland Indians, led everybody to believe they had the trademark situation under control and all was well. We all were kind of stunned when we found that there was a Cleveland Guardians roller derby team that had been in operation for years, but Indians people made it sound like all was well. Not so much. It sounds like they just <laughs> stole the name. It does sound like that. It turns out that, you know, while the Indians were telegraphing to the public that everything was above board with their name change this past summer, they were engaged in this simmering feud with the roller derby team. The Cleveland Guardians roller derby team have been competing uh, based out of Parma since 2014. And they say that they offered the Indians a chance to acquire the naming rights, but that the Indians offered only a four-figure sum in exchange, which the roller derby team rejected out of hand. And the lawsuit says that the, that the baseball team then surreptitiously filed a trademark application for the Cleveland Guardian's name in an East African island nation in the Indian Ocean to try to keep people from learning about the name of the team. And so sleazy. My eyes popped out when I read that. I was like, what? And the You're lawsuit right. said that the baseball team contacted the roller derby team two months later and claimed only that the Guardians was one of the names that they were considering. And then the day before the Indians announced the new name, they filed two federal trademark applications. And in those filings, they didn't mention the existence of this roller derby team at all. So, you know. The you know, whole, here's yeah. the problem. We, we we deal with trademark issues every time we create something like today in Ohio. We had to go make sure that we could do that. And what I've learned is you can have a name that exists if it's in a different kind of vertical. You know, you could have the Cleveland Guardians perfume and a Cleveland Guardians sports team, but you can't have a name in the same vertical. There was a time when we were putting together a a high school sports show years ago and we found that there was a television market that had fairly recently been using a similar name because it was identical it was a high school sports thing we couldn't do it so here we have a sports name i mean a cleveland sports team named the guardians I, that seems like it's the same vertical. It seems like the roller derby team has a very legitimate case here. And the Indians, the former Indians, are saying, no, no, no. We think we can both operate independently as the Cleveland oh. Guardians, which oh, is yeah. preposterous. No. That's just, yeah, it's like, no, no way. So I, it's like, I am shocked that they, the baseball team has fumbled this so badly they misled us to think that this was all okay. I think there's a possible outcome where they have to change their name again, oh which is interesting this week because the commissioner of baseball actually split the hair and said the Atlanta Braves and the Tomahawk Chop are okay, even right. though the Cleveland Indians were not. Exactly. I, I'm like, what is going on with this whole naming thing? How do you argue 
the Braves and the Tomahawk Chop are okay, probably because the Braves are in the World Series and they don't want controversy, but it kind of boggles the mind. Our readers came unglued yesterday when that came out. It's like, wait, because they all want to keep the Indians name. They think it was wrong. So I don't know. Maybe the, the team will have to give up the Guardians name. And given what's going on with the Braves, they'll go back to the Indians. Well, the real question is, is Tom Hanks going to be available for another video? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bet Tom Hanks did not know that they were trampling all over the roller derby team. This is really kind of I know unfair. Tom Hanks would never stand for that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like, here are these, this team, they've been rolling along here for, for multiple years. Rolling along, I like the puns. Right, rolling along, <laughs> and, and now the big baseball team comes in and just bigfoots them and takes their name, in, and I, I don't know what they're thinking. It's going to be fun to watch it this play out, but I if I'm handicapping it, I say the roller derby team's going to come out either it, with a victory or a whole lot, a lot more money, money than four figures. Yeah, some <laughs> sweet New Jerseys. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing here is, is that the baseball team really has a public relations thing. I mean, there were a lot of people upset about losing the Indians name. They're asking the public now for $450 million plus to upgrade the field. And now we find out they're bullying the roller derby team. It's yeah. just so inappropriate uh, the way this is played out. So interesting case. We'll be watching this closely. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What is Cleveland's thinking behind sending accused criminals to a diversion center for mental health treatment only if the crime victims approve? Lisa Garvin, this is yet another area where the city of Cleveland is just thwarting the purpose of the diversion center. The whole idea with the diversion center is mental health and addiction problems sometimes spark people to commit crimes. And rather than punish them in courts, the idea is to get them treatment as quickly as possible to get rid of the underlying cause. Cleveland's already slowed the process down by requiring a prosecutor to sign off, but now they're giving control to the victims? Well, and, and they're using Marcy's law, which was a law passed in 2017. You know, it's a crime victim rights law. That's their argument. They they say that crime victims and these are nonviolent offenders that are sent to the, you know, to the diversion center. Uh, they say that, uh, you know, the victims should grant permission for them to go to the diversion center. But Bill Mason, who is a former prosecutor here in Cleveland, he's now the county chief of staff. He said the law does not ap apply in pre-arrest diversion. And he further says that there's no legal requirement for victims to agree to an offender's placement in the diversion center as the CPD order states. No other police departments in Cuyahoga County have this policy. Um, various people have weighed in saying that it's baffling. It defies common sense. It's just yet another hurdle for people with mental health problems to get immediate treatment. Um, and CPD is not sending people to the diversion center. Uh, as of the 14th of September, 89 people have been sent to the diversion center from Cuyahoga County Police Departments, including Cleveland. Only 10 of those were from Cleveland. So they, and like you said, the pro, they're asking for the prosecutor's permission before sending people there. It's like, almost like they don't want to send people there. It does defy common sense. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really kind of surprised by this because Frank Jackson as mayor has always been about serving the least of us and trying to help people in need. And 
all of this diversion center stuff was aimed at trying to help people in poverty, trying to get rid of race lines in, in prosecutions. It's a humanitarian gesture to try and do things right while emptying the jail. Cleveland arrests far more people than probably all of the suburbs combined. So the fact that they're basically not sending anybody is thwarting it. I don't know. Leila Tassi, you've paid attention to Frank Jackson for probably half as long as I have. What would you think is driving this? Because this doesn't make sense according to his philosophy. Is there some feud going on with the county here? Leila Tassi? Okay, we've lost Leila Tassi. All right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Aisha's law, which is designed to prevent domestic violence suspects from quickly getting out of jail and killing people, finally getting close to becoming law in Ohio? Laura Johnson, my biggest question about this is why it's taking so long. Right. When I saw this story pop up, I kind of thought that Aisha's law was already a law. That's why we called it a law. But no, it officially is House Bill 3. It passed the House in 2020, but never got out of Senate committee. And it passed the House again, 91 to 2 on Wednesday. So Janine Boyd is is trying to push this through from Northeast Ohio. The bill is named after Aisha Frazier. She was a sixth grade teacher in Shaker Heights before she was murdered in November 2018 by her ex-husband, former Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge and State Lawmaker. Lance Mason. This was a big deal case when it came up. He received a life sentence for stabbing Frazier 59 times in front of their daughters, and he's eligible for parole in 35 years. But this law is going to change how domestic violence cases are handled throughout the criminal justice system, beginning at the beginning when police respond to a domestic violence call, and they'll have to perform a lethality assessment to screen whether a victim's at risk for murder. I guess There's studies that show that victims who are strangled by their partners are at greater risk for murder in the future. And until this law, I mean, right now, state law does not include strangulation as domestic violence, which seems incredibly difficult to believe. The the fact is, Mason had beat his wife severely earlier and Mm -hmm. been charged with a crime and and lost his uh, job as a judge. But as often happens in domestic violence, he came back. And this was all about trying to stop that. How many times have we seen it? We've all covered it in our careers that that the bad person gets taken to jail, the bad person gets out of jail, and despite all of the warnings, they go right back and they, mm-hmm. they kill or injure again. I just, when this law was proposed back then, through, what is it, four years ago, three years ago, we all thought it was going to go straight through. So I was kind of surprised that we're talking about it as still waiting for it to pass. What's the delay? Are the people in the legislature like not against domestic violence murders? I don't know. It's the Senate Judiciary Committee that it got tangled up in last time, and that's where it's headed to again. So Janine Boyd is going to schedule a meeting with those members to address their concerns and improve the bill's chances in the Senate. But you're right. I mean, this is something none of us want to see. And if you're you know, you have you heard someone arrested for domestic violence, you should be protected forever. Like the, the fact that this happens over and over again is is really scary. And and whatever we can do to prevent that, I think, I mean, 91 to two in the House. I don't know what the deal is in the Senate. Yeah, it's just strange that we're that it didn't sail through and get passed immediately. It seems like a common sense law. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's see if she's back. Could the search for safe housing soon get a good bit easier for low-income people in Cuyahoga County with housing vouchers? Leila Tassi, have you returned from your technical glitch? <laughs> I am here. Can you hear me? <laughs> uh, yes, we can. <laughs> Chris, 
you know how pumped I was when this news broke yesterday, because as a columnist, I focused really heavily on this issue. Armin Budish announced that he will be asking county council to pass legislation that would ban landlords from discriminating against prospective tenants simply because they plan to use a housing voucher to pay the rent. This is known as source of income discrimination. Right now, only a handful of Northeast Ohio communities have a law like this on the books. South Euclid, Warrensville Heights, University Heights, and Lindale. Akron recently passed a similar ordinance, and there's been some legislation pending before Cleveland City Council for, I don't know, the greater part of this past year. But, you know, under under the law that Budish is proposing, which he said is expected to help 1,400 families over a three-year period, landlords who accept tenant vouchers would receive subsidies for the security deposit or up to two months of rent. Uh, renters who believe that they're still being discriminated against could file a complaint with the county's Human Rights Commission. What what this policy does is bring us much closer to fulfilling the promise of the Federal Housing Choice Voucher Program, which was designed to give families a choice of where they want to live, where they want to raise their kids, because currently discrimination against voucher holders is rampant. Many, many landlords say it up front. No Section 8 is right there in the listing. Or when you call and ask if they accept vouchers, they tell you no, which I did many, many times while I was reporting for these columns. I just kind of cold called tons of, of landlords and was told repeatedly no. Or they say, sorry, this unit isn't certified to accept a voucher, which means simply that they aren't willing to go through the CMHA inspection. Right. Well, let me stop you, though. Let me let me stop you, because the landlords do have a legitimate they beef do. with this program. They do. CMHA has loaded it with red tape. They, right. they have rid, a ridiculous inspection process where they can't do it all at once. There's a series of inspections. Right. So if you want to use vouchers, you might be sitting for three months with a vacant unit while you go through the red tape. So hopefully the, this will spark CMHA to make this more efficient for landlords. I agree. I think, you know, I have heard from many landlords who say they would love to participate in the voucher program because that rent money is guaranteed, direct deposited from the federal government in the bank every month. But the process is so unwieldy that it often means going two or months or more without rental income while you wait for the bureaucracy to finish up its thing. And they're not wrong about that. Now, now would this subsidy offset those inconveniences enough to solve that problem for landlords? Perhaps it it will. And I'm sure that that's the hope. But also, you know, this also adds that pressure to CMHA to work through those bureaucratic problems on their end or face a landlord uprising because they're going to be under pressure. Um, <clears throat> so I wonder if yeah. Marcia Fudge could be prevailed upon to to hasten these processes and clear the red tape. She's surely aware of what goes on in Northeast Ohio and she's the head of the HUD now. And so she could do something. Let me ask you this. The, this is a County legislation, right? But the cities don't have to do what the County says. The cities are charter cities. So if the landlords in Chagrin Falls don't want to deal with vouchers and people in Chagrin Falls don't really want people with vouchers living in their city, couldn't the city council of Sharon Falls or Solon or Beechwood or wherever pass a, 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 their own ordinance that exempts them from this? I don't know. That's an excellent question. That is part that's in that gray area of this. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, and, and there's there are other things that are in the gray area. What happens if a landlord, you know, goes through the inspection process, fails the inspection, so they're not they're not allowed to take a voucher at that point and then just sort of throws up their hands and says, oh, I'm sorry, I can't take a voucher because I failed. I mean, 
what happens then? Are they punished for that? Are they forced to bring their property up to the inspection standards? I don't know. Or can they just move on and rent to somebody else? Um, there, I just, there I go, are issues. I just go, but I do go back to that when they were trying to ban the plastic bags. Right, and, that's true. You had suburbs opting out left and right. So, yeah, you know, and then and then what happens is you, the inner ring suburbs would accept them. The outer ring suburbs would, you know, put their noses up in the air. And so it, it, it it's one where you almost need statewide legislation for it, which that ain't happening with this legislature. Interesting that Budish is pushing it. It would be great to see it be effective. We've got a lot of questions to answer on it, though. Yeah. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How long did it take a jury to find an 83-year-old man not guilty of killing his wife in 1974? And what was unusual about the trial? Lisa, he spent 45 years in prison, and he didn't do it. And jurors took two hours to find him not guilty a second time of the 1974 murder of his wife, Regina Andrews. His original conviction was overturned in 2018, uh, but there was new evidence that came to light. Um, But this trial... It was weird. All the witnesses are dead. The trial involved just reading the original transcripts from the 1975 trial, but uh, and a juror who was interviewed after after they made their verdict, he said actually the transcripts weren't enough to convict back in 1975, even without knowledge of who was probably the real killer. Willie Watts, uh, who is now died. He died back in 2011, but evidence pointed to him. Uh, Regina Andrews' body was found in Forest Hills Park about 1,500 feet from Willie Watts's mother's house, and she was wrapped in sheets from a nearby hotel. Um, and also they found out when they corrected the time of death on Regina Andrews, the alibi that Watts had no longer lined up, but they never followed up on that. So, um, it, it's a shame that he had to go through this trial. And actually, two hours to reach a verdict is lightning fast for anybody who's covered courts or been on a jury. So thank God that that justice was served again for Isaiah Andrews. Well, what's surprising is that the prosecutor, Mike O'Malley, pursued the case. Given, yeah. given what we've learned, the Innocent Project was involved and, and a very good defense attorney in town, Marcus Sedoti, represented him. I just was surprised to see them actually do this. And yeah, you're right. The cops are dead. The witnesses are dead. Very bizarre. They're just reading testimony from back then. But man, it's uh, it's sad that that he had to do this. And think about it. He lost his entire adult life because of a of an incorrect verdict and poor prosecution and investigation. Right. And and for this juror to say, hey, the transcripts kind of showed that he didn't do it in the first place kind of points to a miscarriage of justice here. And yeah, he, I know. It's yeah. really good. quite sad. I wonder, how does an 83-year-old uh, who's been incarcerated for decades reassimilate into society at this point? I really would yeah, like to see I a wonder... follow-up story on that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How bad is the violence in Bedford schools that they are now having remote learning in the middle of next week, until the middle of next week, to stop it? Lord Johnston, this is bizarre. Remote learning was really created to deal with the pandemic to keep people from spreading the virus but violence is so bad there they sent everybody home to learn remotely so they wouldn't beat each other up 
Yeah, this is bad. I mean, I'm glad they have that option, but um, because it, it seems pretty violent at the school and they don't really have one thing to point to about why the conflict is happening, but they had police investigating six fights at the high school since September 1st. Two of those happened at separate Friday night football games. We have no record of how many fights there were where the police were not called. And we don't know how many fights or threats of violence there have been total, but they're trying to figure out the source of conflicts. Meanwhile, they send everybody home. They're improving security. That's going to take at least until November 3rd. And there's still going to be more measures put into place with both personnel and physical security when students return. They already had a teacher's day scheduled for Tuesday, the election day, that kids were not supposed to be in school. So that helps a little bit. But yeah, this is a new one for me. Does, is there anybody positing or speculating on why there's so much violence? Is Are there a bunch of new kids in the school system and that there's a culture clash going on? We don't have any theories at this point, but um, yeah, it's, it's a scary situation. So hopefully everybody simmers down. Although, you know, with everybody having phones and everything, if there's cyberbullying going on or whatever, I can't imagine that kids are just sitting at home not talking to each other. Yeah, it's very strange. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown taking aim at regulating the Federal Reserve officers on where they can invest their personal finances? Lisa Garvin, Brown has been quite the activist since he took over the committee that oversees these kinds of things. This is a new one. What's his aim here? Well, he's trying to stop insider trading and inside information. So this this legislation would ban stock trading by Federal Reserve governors, presidents, and vice presidents of all 12 Federal Reserve banks here in the U.S. Um, it, it was spurred by two cases back in 2020. The, the head of the Boston Federal Reserve Bank, Aaron Rosengren, was uh, dealing in real estate securities deals. And then Robert Kaplan in Dallas, he retired after facing a bunch of questions over oil and gas stock trades that he made. So this new legislation would not allow any individual stocks or commodities to be traded by these people in the Federal Reserve, but they can have U.S. treasuries, diversified mutual funds, or investment trusts. But if they have existing investments, those are, it looks like they're grandfathered or they would have to be moved to a blind trust. But yeah, obviously they have inside information on what's going on. So no, they shouldn't use that information to enrich themselves. So this is a common sense bill, in my opinion. Well, doesn't it seem like this should already have happened, that this is pretty obvious that if you're in charge of the nation's money policy, you shouldn't be able to use that information to enrich yourself? Yeah, I'm just surprised that we have to do this. And you, yeah, you you would think they'd already do it. But there's a monetary penalty on this bill. So if it passes, they, they would have to pay 10% value of the improper investment that was made. And interestingly enough, the Federal Reserve announced their own similar rules, but without financial penalties. So we'll see which one wins the day here. Although what Sherrod Brown is proposing is a law, not a policy. So, Yeah, it's been fun to watch him in action. He really has brought up a lot of things that, that are good for good government, even though our government seems to be <laughs> collapsing <laughs> with polarization. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The federal government awarded a bunch of grants aimed at dealing with harmful algal blooms like the ones that shut down Toledo's water system a few years back. 
Laura Johnson, let's talk about the projects. We need to get this under control. Climate change is not going away. Eventually, the algae will overtake us all. Yeah, absolutely. And this year, the algae stayed pretty much in the Western Basin. I never saw it in the Central Basin. We'll get a update soon on just how severe that was. It was supposed to be pretty moderate. But they are working to get this under control. $1.8 million in grants for detecting or removing toxins from the lake. This is the blue-green algae that scums up the top and would make drinking any of that water toxic. It hurts tourism. It hurts you know, all of these cities that have to pay to put in extra stuff to clean it up. So the first new project is $234,000 going to the University of Michigan, their Cooperative Institute for Great Lakes Research, and a couple of other schools. They're going to have a third generation environmental sample processor. Um, and it's with an autonomous surface vehicle. So something that would go out and collect these without a person having to be on it. And the rest of the grants are going to projects that are already underway. $715,000 to a project at the University of Toledo, which would develop testing of microcystin degrading bacteria and would remove the toxins from drinking water. I mean, that's a huge, huge plus. <laughs> you want safe drinking water. And then um, Bowling Green is in part of this, Ohio State. They, they can get portable detection technologies that citizens could use and stuff for the Great Lakes Observing System, which is this really neat federally run program that has buoys all over the lake that that's for existing instrumentation to pr pr improve telemetry and have data in integration. Obviously, these very scientific terms, but they're all working to the same goal to get rid of the harmful algal blooms and, and make our water safe to drink. It's been a few years since we went deep on this, but if my memory serves, the one of the most difficult challenges is removing the microcystin, that it takes a serious investment and a lot of money to filter that from the water. It's not something you can simply run through some charcoal. So it sounds like they're focused on trying to make that more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of work that's being done on the other end to keep these toxins out of the lake in the first place with fertilizer and runoff from the Maumee Valley, but these are all specifically on the end product. And luckily, we haven't had that problem in Cleveland. They have a lot of detection that they could switch the filters, you know, switch where our water's coming from if they get a bloom close by. But places like Toledo, this is something they deal with every summer. Well, the difference, too, between Toledo and Cleveland is Toledo did not keep investing in its water system. They didn't have the number of intakes Cleveland has. Cleveland, over the last 20, 25 years, has done a lot to upgrade its water plants. And so we're in a much safer position. We're also not at the western end of the lake. Although, if we don't get this under control, it will get here. The, uh, the, the, the algae just keeps spreading. Interesting stuff. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With a day with the technical glitches we're having, it's good to end a little bit early. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. We will be back tomorrow, hopefully, for a no-glitch episode. For the last time, we're calling it This Week in the CLE. 